Hello coaches and welcome back to the ITA College Tennis Coaches Podcast. I trust you all had a great Thanksgiving. Today I speak with Giancarlo Lemmy, who is the Associate Head Women's Coach at Liberty University. In 2016, after a tough end to the season, he felt like something was missing and he sought out new ways to develop himself as a coach. He attended Celia Slater's True North Sports Coach Development Academy and has not looked back since. This experience helped Giancarlo develop his now well-refined coaching philosophy, which he names the Court of Excellence. He elaborates on his philosophy in an easy-to-read book also named the Court of Excellence, which I highly recommend you order today. You can find the link in our coach education newsletter. In this podcast, we discuss his philosophy, what he learned from writing the book, how this guides his decision-making, and how coaches can begin to develop their own coaching philosophy. I know that coaching and leadership philosophies can be very personal, so thank you, Giancarlo, for coming on the show and sharing your philosophy with all our coaches. Your book is a great gift for all college tennis coaches. Giancarlo Lemmy, welcome to the ITA College Tennis Coaches podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I've listened to so many of them. Now I'm, I'm glad I get to be a part of it. So you're our one listener. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for listening. And, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really thrilled to, to have you on. You sent me your, your new book, The Court of Excellence, uh, several weeks ago. And I, and I uh, flew through it in, in one day. Uh, I loved uh, every chapter. Um, wish I could go back to coaching and implement <laughs> some of the lessons you taught me. So I'm excited for you to, to share your wisdom with the coaches today. But can you take us through what The Court of Excellence is and, and how you developed this concept? Yeah, um, I think everyone, every one of us coaches has a philosophy. If it's known to us or not, then it's up to us to figure that out. Um, and I think the first years that I was coaching, I just was flying just with no thought, just basically repeating what other coaches did to me, you know, mm -hmm. and, um, and not really reassessing and evaluating, see if that was working or not. That was just my comfort zone. And I just, that's what I was doing. And we were producing a little bit of success, but not the type of success that I was, that I was planning to have. Um, and so 2016, we, we lost a very close match to Winthrop in the Big South finals when we're still in the Big South. And I was just so mad because it had nothing to do with tennis, all to do with mental toughness and mm -hmm. making the girls care more and value that opportunity more. Um, and, and I started looking for ways to get better as a coach because if I was asking my players to get better as tennis players, I had to model that behavior as well. And I found a, uh, um, I found Celia Slater who has a great job, does a great job, um, with professional development of coaches, um, nothing to do with X's and O's, but all to do with off the court, um, things. And she inspired me to, to just sit down and put, put a philosophy on paper. She had a speaker named Holly Hesse was a softball coach and Holly had developed the diamond of, um, success. And it was a, it was a softball field and each, each part of the field had a, a part of her coaching philosophy. And I sat down and I was like, well, well I can, I can build a tennis court, do the same thing. Um, and that's how it all started. And it took me four years to get it all down. You know, mm -hmm. some things that I, that I thought at the beginning, it's like, oh, this is a, what I truly believe in. It turned out a few years later that I really didn't care so much about that. And so when COVID hit and I had a lot of, more time in my hands, I decided to just sit down and put it on paper 
and create something that people could keep me accountable for, you know, because if I say in the book that I care about communication and my players are, you know, complaining that I don't communicate enough, then that's, Mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's what I need to hear, you know? So um, that's how it all started. And I'm, I'm glad uh, you liked it. And I, I hope some other coaches will enjoy it as well. Oh, I, I know they will. And, and uh, yeah, definitely be encouraging them to, to go purchase it as soon as possible. Um, but so, so really, it's one thing to come up with a philosophy and, and maybe put it in a journal or, or put it on a piece of paper, maybe stick it up in your office. But why go to all the trouble of putting it in a book, editing it, publishing it, coming up with a cover? Uh, coming up with the title, um, and and then how has that experience made you a better tennis coach? Do you believe? Yeah, that I I did it because of the process. I keep preaching about the process to the to the um, the players on the team, but I'm I'm a big reader. I I read a lot of books, and I always had this 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 thought in my head that one day I would love to write a book. You know, just have something physical that my kids could go back to and years from now, my family and be like, wow, my dad or my son or my husband actually wrote a book, you know, mm-hmm. um, while I was writing it and looking at the process, I've came up, came, um, came in front of a stat that said about 80% of people in the world say that they have a book in them, but there's only 1% of people in the world that actually write books, you know? Yeah. And so I just sat down and, the book was just, it was an exercise just to have um, something to, to have a purpose during this COVID time when we can't coach, we can't travel, we can't recruit, we can't do anything. It's like, well, might as well get better by becoming a better writer, a better researcher. Um, and even while writing the book, I, I started having some flashbacks of things that have happened to me in my life. And as a coach that now has helped me become a better coach. Um, and so when you, when you have that, the, the plan to, to write something down that people can judge you by, it makes you really think about those things, you know? Um, and so the process is very arduous. It took longer to edit, get a cover than actually write the book. (laughs) Um, but also just, uh, having the resilience and the mental toughness to sit down every day, be disciplined to write a hundred words or you know, 500 words every day, it, it has made me a better human being just to have that mental toughness of, I have a task. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I don't feel like it. Sometimes I only slept three hours because I have young kids, but I said I was going to do it and I just have to follow through with it. So, mm-hmm. um, there was a lot of early mornings and late nights when everybody's asleep still. Um, but, uh, I, I was just happy to be done with it when, when it came out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like I said, you, you should be very proud of it. And I can only imagine the, the clarity that it's provided you in terms of how you go about your business on a daily basis, not not just with your student athletes, but how you conduct yourself off the court as well. But one of the, the quotes uh, early in the book that I really loved was there are only three seasons in life. You are in the middle of the storm. You just have got out of the storm or you better buy an umbrella. So you you also say this is one of your favorite quotes. And uh, can you tell us how it influences your approach to life and coaching? I think this is a, a great example of what we're living right now, right? I think every one of us would say that right now we're in the middle of the storm and that February, which is only seven months ago, 
was the good old days, you know, <laughs> like, Oh, remember the good old days when we could do whatever we want. Uh, yeah. Um, and so I think in, and sometimes these seasons are a few days, you have terrible few days, something bad happens, but then a few days later you get out of that storm, but you can't ever lose sight that those are seasons and seasons are cyclical. Mm-hmm. So whatever season you're going in life and you have it right now, you have to understand that it's either going to get worse or it's going to get better. And so if you're having a great season in tennis and you're winning every time and there will be a time where it's not going to happen. And are you prepared to deal with that? You know, but then if you're having a terrible season of life or season in college tennis or whatever sport, whatever job you have, know that at some point it will get better. Um, maybe you have to do something. Maybe somebody else has to change something, but it's all cyclical. Nothing lasts forever. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think that, that, that um, when that happened, when COVID hit and our season got canceled, that was the first quote I told my team, you know, it's like we were in Hawaii when the season got shut down. Like oh, there's wow. nothing better, <laughs> you know, we're sitting at the beach and we get a, you get, you know, coach Marin called me and said, Hey, our season got canceled. We have to gather everybody and tell them, you know? And so that was a perfect time where it's like, yeah, I should, I should be ready because you can't really get any better than playing tennis in Hawaii mm-hmm. and something bad, not something terrible, but like it's going to change. The season is yeah. going to change. So you were, at, you were out buying your umbrella while everybody was sitting on the beach. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, and so I think that's the thing. If, if everything is great, like if you're making lots of money, are you saving some for when maybe you lose your job or you have something with your health happens? Um, that's, that's the buying of the umbrella. Are you preparing for a time when it's not that? Mm-hmm. Um, and so once I, I heard that quote probably about 15 years ago, um, I can't even remember who said it. It might've been in a movie or I can't even remember, but almost every day I think about that. Um, and, and again, like I said, sometimes the season's, the last days, sometimes it can last years, but it'll always, it'll always be changing. Yeah. Yeah. That, that quote's really struck, stuck with me. And I've thought about it often since reading your book and, and maybe it is just the times that we're living in right now. And Mm. that's why it made such an impression on me, but want to kind of go through some of the chapters in your book and, and every chapters, you know, talks about uh, each element of your uh, coaching philosophy and and their short chapters, they're quick, but you, you pack a lot in uh, to some of those chapters. And so I want to start with recruiting. And, and I know myself as a, as a coach and, and many other coaches, we, we look, we all want to recruit student athletes of high character, you know, um, but, you know, we say we're, we're willing to overlook some bad results and lower rankings and, oh, we don't care about the UTR uh, as long as this person will be a great addition to the team and, and have a positive outlook. But then, you know, we, we fall back on recruiting the player with the highest rankings. So how do you encourage coaches to stay disciplined when it comes to these matters and trust the voice in the back of their head about any concerns they might have about a prospective student athlete? Yeah, I think um, you have to begin with what kind of values do you want your team to have and uphold? Um, if all you care is about winning, then you know, if, as long as a player is performing, you don't care what he or she is doing off the court or in the classroom or anything. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, we have to win to keep our jobs. That's, you know, at some point we actually have to win tennis matches to keep our jobs. Um, but at the same time, I think it also depends 
on the level of the school you're, you're coaching at right now. I think um, when we started here at Liberty, the team was good. Um, we had just won a regular conference, uh, regular season conference title um, the previous year, but we weren't great. Um, and so when Coach Marin and I came to Liberty um, 2012, we, we wanted to have a, a you know incredible character team, but we also had to elevate the level of tennis um, because we wanted to stay here for a long time. And so there is that little fine balance that you have to find between what are some things that maybe it's not the perfect player, but she, you know, you can try, you can try to fix that or try to teach her or him the, the, the right way to go, but can she perform also? You know, Liberty is a Christian school and we always say we can't find eight Tim Tebow's every year, <laughs> you know, incredible athletes uh, yeah. that are just incredible, you know, Christians. And, and so we, we had to find that fine balance. And now as we go up in the rankings and we get more notoriety, we can find some more players who do have the same values that we do and still can win tennis matches for us. Mm-hmm. And so the last three, four years, recruiting has been easier um, because we have been fat, you know, we haven't been able to find more OKGs that I call in the book. They're our mm-hmm. kind of girl, you know? Um, and so um, I think that, I think the coach has to first self-evaluate, see what, what does he want? What does she want from his or her program? And, and then go after those players, knowing that your job will be much more enjoyable if you're working with people that have the same values as you. Yeah. Yeah. But how do you really stay true to that? That That's what I want to know. Like, <laughs> okay. how, how do you, when you, when you have to go pull the trigger on it, how, how do you, is it, is it just really coming back to those values, reminding yourself, rereading them, you, you know, because we always have that little voice in the back of our head and, um, sometimes we listen to it, sometimes we don't, but it, it's so tempting to take that better player and, and look past some of the things. So, uh, how, how do you, when it co- comes time to pulling that trigger, what do you do to remind yourself? Well, I think, um, always having that type of communication with, um, the superiors, the SWA and AD mm-hmm. and be, be completely honest with them and be like, Hey, look, I can run a wholesome program here. Um, but it, we might struggle for a few years trying to trying to build a wholesome program where we're having just high character. Um, maybe tennis level might not be as high, but we're running it, you know, or mm-hmm. if your AD or SWA only cares about winning, then, you know, then you have more freedom in overlooking some of the stuff that you might not want just to have those wins. You know, mm-hmm. cause I think a lot, a lot of coaches just kind of sometimes sell their soul to the devil with some of the recruits, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I had a friend coach who, who said, you know, if you miss out on a recruit and, you know, if you recruit a bad player, she'll haunt you every day. But if you miss out on a terrible recruit and she's an incredible tennis player, she'll only haunt you once every four years or, you know, when you play <laughs> that score. So right. um, I think that I, I always keep that in mind as well, that if the tennis level is really high, but character is a little iffy. I'm going to have to work with her still every day. And mm-hmm. how, how am I going to feel every time I'm, I'm working with her, you know? Right. And so, um, it is tough. It is tough yeah. because it's a, it's a results based business. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the coaches who can find a balance and are able to grow the program, yeah. um, are in a better shape. Yeah. So it's maybe keeping in mind some of those 
bad experiences that you've had as a coach and, yeah. and remembering, wow, every day I had to go work with this player and it was so miserable and so tough. And these are the issues and kind of remembering the negative a little <laughs> bit uh, yes. when it comes to that. Okay. Yeah. So can you take us through your process of encouraging constant feedback from your players? Yeah. Um, I think feedback is, is tremendous uh, both ways. I think not just in your team, but with your family, with your friends, I think, when everybody knows what's expected of them and how you think you're doing and how they think you're doing, I think that that takes so much pressure off of the the, the work. Um, we we usually do with with the team here. We usually have about once a month. We have a, a, a individual meeting with them, and sometimes it's very structured. Sometimes it's not. Um, but every month we ser- we we send out a survey a little bit more detailed survey where they talk and the the players are able to um, give their feedback in everything about the program, support staff, um, some activities that we've done, um, how it's practice, how, how do they think the teammates are doing? How do they think they are doing? Um, That way we know what they're thinking. Sometimes they might not say it out loud, but when they sit down and they have time to to write it out um, that way, if something is coming up that is about to create some some problems, we can we can catch it early on. Um, if four or five players say, "Well, oh, the trainer is late every day," not that that happens delivery, but you know, <laughs> maybe they wouldn't come and complain to us right away. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe we can address that with the trainer um, or in practice. Man, practice has been so hard. We're all fatigued every day, but they don't want to say that because they don't want to sound, you know, weak or that they're lazy, yeah. but if four or five girls in one month the same hand practice was just too hard, then maybe we need to, to change what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the same way with our feedback to them, constantly telling them, Hey, great job. You did this great. I noticed you did, you know, you picked up your, your teammate when she was not doing well or Hey, great forehand today, or I've seen your serve develop throughout the month and it's doing great. Or Hey, uh, you know, two or three days in a row now that you've, you've kind of gone through the motions. Um, that way they know, because I think at first we were just doing once a semester meeting at the end, you know, and in the fall was, Hey, you won four matches. You lost 12 in the spring. You don't, you're not playing any matches, mm-hmm. or, you know, <laughs> or, and then in the spring after that season, you give them their record. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, maybe you should transfer or, <laughs> You know what I'm talking about? And I, yeah, yeah. and I think a lot of coaches are still doing that. Um, mm-hmm. They just talk to their players about their performance once a, once a semester. Right. And, and the players are always guessing. And mainly with, in women's tennis, mm-hmm. um, they're, they're always wanting to know what you think of them. And yeah. I think if, it's, if you want to send a, the, you know, if you want to create trust between the two of you, you have to be honest. You can't mm-hmm. sugarcoat it. You have to be respectful. Um, but I think they, they will appreciate knowing where they stand. Mm-hmm. Even if it's, if, even if it's in a low standing, they rather know than not know. I think that, and, and looking back at me as a coach, as a player, I'm, you know, you're always guessing, Oh, this coach watching me now, or did he notice when I did this or, mm-hmm. you know, and I think <laughs> now as I look back, I'm like, I, I want to be as active as I can in yeah. letting my players know um, 
where, where they are and where, you know, and that I believe in them, that I, that I'm here to help them, you know? Sure. So, so do you send out the, the survey on a particular day? They have whatever, 48 hours. I usually, I usually, I schedule it with, um, Google docs, Mm -hmm. um, just a Google docs form. Um, like I pick a random Friday, just the third Friday every month and Mm -hmm. they just have the, the whole weekend. Um, and then we can sit down as a staff Monday morning and just see all those answers, compare mm-hmm. them. Um, and, and then if, you know, if there's things that need to be addressed, we can address it right away. Um, yeah. Instead of waiting for that end of year in the spring exit interview with the SWA, when right. the players just bring all this, this dirty laundry and you're like, well, I have no time to defend myself or even fix it. I didn't know anything about it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it also keeps me, keeps them accountable in a way where um, if they tell me everything is great all year and at the end of the year they tell the SWA or the AD or whoever that it was a terrible year, then I can go back and I have proof that you told me everything was fine 10 times. Yeah. So <laughs> was it maybe the last day that everything just turned bad? Yeah. Um, so I think um, that's a good way to almost as insurance for the coaches. Um, mm-hmm. It's very simple to set up a Google form when they're f- filling out a survey. Very easy to see those results. Um, and you just basically copy and paste it every month. It's not, it yeah. um, takes time to just do it once, but then every time. Right. It's just the same question. So um, that's something we've implemented the last few years that has been really helpful. I'm sure it's brilliant. And, and so you talk about, you know, in the book, serving your players in every way possible during their four years at Liberty. How, how do you balance making life easier for your student athletes, keeping them happy, but also pushing them out of their comfort zones and, and developing yeah. a culture of gratitude? Because I know that's something coaches really struggle with. Yeah, that's another fine, fine line where, you know, how much do you spoil your kids? Um, <laughs> and um, because, you know, a lot, of, a lot of schools have the budget to really treat them like queens, you know. Yeah. Um, but then at what point does that hurt the team? You know, when we first started our, you know, we have, we have a good budget. We have good facilities. Support staff is incredible. They get the nicest Nike uniforms that there is. Um, and we're still losing to teams that didn't even have tennis courts, you know, that they're traveling by bus every day to go practice at a high school and have no lights and there's no indoor courts. And when it's cold, they just go out there in the cold and we have indoor courts and, yeah. um, and so that, that was a struggle for us at the beginning. Um, one, one exercise, and I share, I believe, in the book, it's a Brene Brown's marble jar exercise mm-hmm. um, where every day before practice, as a team, we sit down and each girl has the opportunity to share something that someone on the team or something that happens with, has something happened with her where somebody went out of their way to help them. Um, and if that happens, then they get a marble inside a marble jar. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like a player can say, well, so-and-so took me to Walmart when I didn't have a car and it was raining. You get a marble jar. That's, that's a small act that creates gratitude that makes her think about, oh yeah, actually yesterday somebody helped me, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and we tell them whenever the marble jar is filled up, we'll go out for ice cream or dessert, you know? So it just gives them that that incentive to always be looking for things to be thankful for, you know? And sometimes it's, man, I forgot my jacket and my roommate remembered and she brought it to me, you know? Um, And and any other day, she might not even thought twice about it. Um, 
and that goes with the coaches as well. We're included in that. Um, but I like a quote that says, um, there's no growth in the comfort zone and there's no comfort in the growth zone. Um, and so always reminding them that if they want to get better, we need to get them out of their comfort zone. Um, and if they just want to be comfortable and just do their own thing, go through the motions then they can't expect to see growth at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's a, it's a fine line. Um, because some teams just don't have the budget or the resources to spoil their kids. And sometimes I wish I had less resources because I think that would make it a, a much easier job for me to instill that sense of gratitude in them. Yeah. I know it's, it's, it's really hard. Something I struggled a lot with in, in coaching my, my last year in coaching. One, one of the players was upset because they didn't get as many clothes as the volleyball team or the soccer team or something like that. And I'm at the university of Oklahoma. Believe me, they get, they get everything they need and more, but it's, it's like, or, or when they show up wearing a, a baseball shirt from their boyfriend, you know, <laughs> It's like you're showing up to the tennis practice and it says Liberty baseball. Don't you have enough Liberty tennis clothes that you could wear? Yeah, yeah it's, uh, mm -hmm. but it is, it's really challenging. And, and I understand what the athletic departments are trying yeah. to do. And, and if they're treating certain athletes sure. a certain way, they've got to treat everybody a certain sure. way. And, and um, it, it looks good on paper and recruiting, but really hurts the coach and hurts the development of these players. Um, you know, just for life. It's yeah. just not the real world and it's Correct. not what they're about to enter. And so maybe, uh, maybe with COVID, we can get some of uh, you yeah. know, a return to, to some of those things, yeah. but I guess time will tell, but, um, where do parents fit in with your court of excellence and what approach, uh, do you take to communicating with the parents of your players? Yeah. I think we've all had as coaches to deal with some parents that maybe we wish we hadn't had to deal with them. Um, I think um, tennis is, is, is mostly an elite sport. So parents are very um, involved in their kids' lives throughout their whole, um, their whole careers and the juniors, you know, they're, they're, they're their kids, parents, sponsors, sometimes coach, sometimes fitness trainer, nutritionist, they're cooking meals every day. Um, And when their kid leaves to go somewhere else, some parents still feel entitled to be all those roles for their kids. Mm. Um, and my opinion, I think parents can make or break our careers as coaches. You know, all it takes is one email to the AD or SWA and it's over. And I think, so we've tried to, we, we've tried to develop relationships with the parents almost as much as the players. Um, trying to be an extension of those parents' values um, and, and what they want their, their kid to do and be successful in. Um, because if, it, if it's not happening and parents are calling you every day, hey, why is my kid playing four, not five, or not three? To me, that's, that's, that's terrible. Um, but their kid is, there's been there so focused for so long that when maybe their kid is not doing as well as, as she should, it's probably it's in their mind is always a coach's fault, you know? Um, yeah. and so what, what I've tried is try to develop a relationship during recruiting. And then once the kid comes here, just constant communication with the parents, almost in a one way, you know, way, um, one way traffic where I am just giving information, proactively giving the parents information, um, by the way of newsletters, 
I send out a monthly newsletter to the uh, to the parents, which I also send to donors and recruits. But it's the same letter saying, "Hey, this 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 month we did this. This month we read this book as a team. These are some news. Here's our upcoming schedule. Mm-hmm. Um, and if parents want to come, they're more than welcome to. But I think it's important in the recruiting process and after the players come to set some boundaries with the parents. You know." Because yeah. if not, you're going to be getting phone calls every day from, from parents that are not happy with the position that your their daughter's playing in. Um, and I think that's just that adds extra stress to our lives that we, it could be eliminated. Yeah. Yes, definitely. If, if I went back to coaching at some point, I, I think I would be uh, more communicative with the, yeah. with the parents. It was interesting. I, I lived back in Ireland for three years after I, I retired from coaching and before coming back here and I worked just kind of on the side a little bit, helping players through the recruiting process. And it was, it was sh- kind of shocking to me just how involved the parents were. And I, and I had underestimated how, you know, the parents are making the decision. Yeah. Like I used to think like, Oh, I just want to communicate with the player. And, but the parent, like it was so obvious to me case after case, the parents are making the decision and, and, or having a really like high level of influence yeah. Yeah. over that decision. And like you said, they're, they're not going to let go anytime soon. It's taking them a little bit longer to let go and, and managing that relationship. It's just one more stakeholder as a college yeah. coach that you have to manage now. Yeah. Um, and I, I think also, if I want, if I could add something, it's today's generation, whatever letter of the alphabet is now. Z, we're at Z, so we're going back to A in a while. <laughs> um, they are, um, they're just very dependent on their parents. There's very few that are, in, you know, independent and can make decisions for themselves. And, mm-hmm. um, and so we just have to realize that and we have to change with the times. We can't. Coach, even I've been, I've been only coaching for eight years and I've already changed the way I coach from the first few girls who are mm. maybe millennials to now Gen Z. And it's, if you, if you think, um, that you're going to coach the same team every year the same way, then you're not going to find success. Mm-hmm. Um, because every year there's something different that you have to adapt to, um, to so, so that you can be successful with your players. Um, yeah. so you can relate to them. You know, I think a lot of coaches just can't relate to them. They don't know what Snapchat is or I don't use Snapchat. I try to limit my social media, but at least I know what it is and the influence that it has on the players' minds, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a great point, Giancarlo. And, and how do you relate to these players? I mean, that was something that was becoming very obvious to me, my final years of coaching. It was just, I didn't feel like I could relate to many of the players any longer. And, um, yeah, just one more reason why I was getting out of, of college coaching. Yeah. So I'll leave it to, to you young fellas to, <laughs> to figure that out. Um, but how would you encourage coaches to begin the process of writing down their own coaching philosophy? If you're a new coach or maybe you've been coaching for many years, but you haven't gone to the, the trouble of putting your philosophy yeah. down on paper, how, how can they do that? I think um, you have to first develop self-awareness. Um, Meditation has been key to me the last few years. Um, just taking a few moments of silence, um, even if it's guided meditation, but it's just some time for yourself. The world is so busy and so noisy mm-hmm. that you're just taking information all the time. And sometimes all you do is just consume information. You never create anything. You just consume podcasts, books, TV, news, Twitter, Instagram, all that stuff. And 
and you never have a time to just sit down, even if it's five minutes every day or whenever you can find it. Um, be intentional in finding some time to just sit, think about your day, think about where you are in your career or with a, as a family, um, and and start writing out what is important to you. I think that was that's the, that was the key to me was what's important to me as a as a husband, as a father, as a coach, and all the roles that I have. And and I started jotting down some things, and it ended up that it it turned into a court, you know, a tennis court. Um, but it, it, it didn't come up. I didn't come up with a court in one hour. It took four years for me to come up with a whole tennis court of daily, just sitting down and be like, Oh, what is important to me when I'm looking at a recruit? Um, do I, do I really care about my players development? What, what about their development that I care about? Do I care just about their tennis? Do I care about their academics, social, spiritual development or everything? Do I care that, they sleep well. Do I care that they eat well? If I don't, then maybe that's not part of my philosophy. Mm -hmm. Um, But um, I think having the self-awareness first so that you can then expand your, your horizons and start looking at others and be like, how can I help these people? Yeah. That's brilliant because it's so easy to copy, right? I mean, it's like, well, I'm supposed to care about their sleep. I'm supposed to care about their nutrition. So I'm going to write that in my coaching philosophy, yeah. <laughs> but it's not, not really something I care. Right. I actually care about these other things. And, right. and that's where, yeah. yeah, it's, it's developing yeah. that self-awareness is, uh, and, and outside of meditation, do you have, I, I know you have a pretty rigorous morning routine. You get up at four o'clock in the morning, uh, yeah. before your, your kids get up, you've got young kids. And, and I think a lot of coaches can relate to that. And that, that's, yeah. that's a struggle in itself. That's a transition that uh, I know a lot of coaches struggle with when they've gone from being without kids to, <laughs> yeah. to having young kids. It, it just yeah. uh, turns your, your world upside down. But you, you have a morning practice. Would you be willing to share that with the coaches? Sure. Yeah, anytime. Um, I've based my morning practice out of um, the Miracle Morning book <laughs> from Hal Elrod. Um, his is about an hour long. Mine is not so so long. Um, but I started this right after my first kid was born in 2017. Um, because she didn't let me sleep. So I was like, if I'm out here, might as well just get something done, you know, um, because she would wake up at three, four o'clock in the morning and then need a bottle mm-hmm. and then go back to sleep. But I'm like, well, it's already four thirty, five o'clock. My wife's going to wake up at six. You know, if I go back to sleep, then I'm just going to be groggy. Um, and I loved my sleep before my first kid came around. I, my wife and I, we would sleep 10, 11 hours a night because we're not night owls. We just like going back to bed early and we would wake up really, you know, seven, eight o'clock in the morning. We didn't have anything. So, um, when the first kid came around, that was a struggle, but I was like, let me turn something that might be seen as negative, turn something positive. And so now my body automatically wakes me up at four, even if now my kids don't wake me up at four. Um, and it didn't, it, you know, it took me a year, year and a half to get my body to do that. It wasn't overnight, but just if you set your alarm, if you're usually waking up at seven, if you set your alarm one day at six fifty, then a week later, six thirty, you just go incrementally down. You'll see that your body adapts. Um, and so now we're getting to four, four thirty in the morning. Um, I, I read, I do some quiet time, meditation. Um, I journal. Um, I think journaling as a self-awareness exercise is critical. Just going over what your day is going to look like, your intentions for that day, or maybe review the day before. Um, that has been 
tremendous help to my development as a coach and as a human being. Um, and then I try to exercise if I can. Um, now this semester we've been having practices in the morning, so I'll just count that as my exercise. Um, but if you if you if you're able to set up a, uh, set up some time, and to me I believe it's in the morning. I think at night you're just so tired you're you're, you're more prone to not doing it. So if you're able to at first wake up 10, 15 minutes earlier than you usually do, just get your cup of coffee, tea, whatever you need to get yourself awake, um, and then go and sit down, spend some time just alone doing something that can make you better. Then I think you're 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 in the right track to to become a better person. Yeah, for sure. So can you tell coaches maybe how they can go from formulating a philosophy, but then ensuring that they're living on it on a daily basis. So like you said, it took you about four years to really solidify your, your philosophy, but how again can they make sure that, okay, they're writing this down, they've got some awareness of it, but how do they actually go about living it? Well, I think once, once you write it down, that's already a great way to remember it. Um, if you're just keeping thinking, if you just have it in your mind, you're not as, you're not as prone to remembering those things. Mm-hmm. Um, once you write it down and then create reminders all the time. So if you need to post, these are my core values, you know, four core values of my life. Put it on the background of your phone. You're looking at your phone five hours a day anyways. So might as well get that reminder. Um, put it on the mirror in your bathroom. Um, because when you're, when you have that constant visual reminder, you, you will be more cognizant of it. Um, you're going to become more aware of it. And then it takes actually being active and, and acting it out. Um, and so, and then evaluate the end of the day. How was I, if I say my value is communication, did I communicate well with the people today? Or maybe did I lack in this area? Um, evaluate. Um, but it, again, it's not an overnight, overnight thing. And I, I'm not saying that I'm, I'm doing it perfectly either. It's just a process to me still. Um, and, but I've just seen the benefits in my life and, and hopefully the people around me have seen it as well. Yeah. Well, well done and, and keep, keep it going. It's uh, great stuff. Um, so I, I know I was, I was on a call with you, you recently with Celia Slater and, and uh, our, our mentees, uh, the ITA, USTA mentees are, are going through a course with Celia. Um, but, but she interviewed you on that call and you talked about, um, you know, how you went about developing a library. And uh, you were just going to Goodwill and finding, you know, books for yeah. $2 here or $1 or whatever it yeah. was and developed a, a library. So what, what is one book that's made a major impact on you as a coach? Um, if I had to choose one book, it would probably be Extraordinary Influence by Tim Irwin. And it talks about um, how you can find ways to, to influence your players, whoever you come in contact with to better serve them. Mm-hmm. Um, the responsibility that we have is that we have as coaches coaching 18 to 22 year olds. That's a huge responsibility. Yep. And I think some co- sometimes coaches lose track of that. That's a huge um, fork on the road or a crossroads for our players. And if we're better prepared ourselves to serve them, then I think um, we'll, we'll be in a, we'll, we'll feel happier, maybe more fulfilled in our jobs. Um, I tell my players all the time that the happiest day of my history with you will not be 
when we signed you. And I think sometimes coaches celebrate the signing of a player so much, mm. but then they don't celebrate anything after that. Um, my, the happiest time in my life, in my relationship with you, will be when you get married or when you get your dream job and you call me and say, hey, I got my dream job. You know, um, when when you have kids and you call me sharing with your kids. Now I'm getting to a stage where my, my former players are having kids, which makes me feel really old that I'm having kids <laughs> as my players are having kids. Um, but that, that book just opened my eyes to the kind of responsibility that we have um, and, and making me take ownership and, and go after it full hearted. Yeah. Yeah. Another, another one that helped yep. me as a coach to develop those habits that I've had is atomic habits by uh, James clear. Mm-hmm. That one, um, it, it will, it will blow your mind just on the stats and how to do it. Um, that book probably came out about two years ago is tremendous. Um, yeah. he does a great job explaining how you can build some habits and break old habits. Mm-hmm. Great. And what is your favorite drill? Oh, I, this drill, I loved it even ever since I was a player here at, at Liberty as a, at, when I was a player here, um, we just called it the drill and it was, um, guys, I think more than girls, you, you're able to come to the net so much, so much more often. Um, and so every day we would do it 50, 60 times. We would feed an approach. We would approach down the line, get the volley and drop volley cross court every time, you know, and that to me, just stuck in my brain. And every time I got a short ball, I would approach down the line and put the volley cross court. Sometimes it didn't work, but when you do it 50, 60 times every day over the <laughs> four years, by the time you're a senior, you're pretty confident at the net. Mm. Um, and so even though I coach, I coach women's now, I'm always trying to get them to understand that drill that just because they're stepping inside the court doesn't mean that they're lost. You know, they, they, they <laughs> think most girls are comfortable just running side to side in their baseline. Mm-hmm. Um, but the ones who are able to move forward and are comfortable at the net, um, putting that volley away. Um, first, their matches are going to last a little shorter, um, which helps us all. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, but I think that, that drill to me has been um, really fundamental in my coaching um, because like I said in, in, in the book, there's the four words there in the, in the inside the service box that they'll make your life a little easier. I think every time we're on top of the net, I think you're going to win a lot more points than you'll lose. Yeah. So name one thing you've changed your mind on in recent years, whether it's in coaching or in life. Um, I think, and I shared in the book is running my family like a, like a business, like a tennis team, having set core values and having ways to, to have feedback. My, my kids are three and one, so they're, they're giving me feedback their way. Um, but when my wife and I um, we were driving and we listened to a podcast from uh, Donald Miller, and he talked about running your family like a business where you have core values. You actually have a family philosophy. Mm-hmm. And this is what we want our family to be about. Um, and we're like, wow, that's I don't think many people think that way. You know, you just go through the motions of your family, you get married, then you have kids or you adopt or you get jobs and you retire. Um, but if you just ask them, what do you want your family to be about? They might, they might not have an answer. So we sat down, um, we went on a date, the grandparents took care of the kids. Um, we went on a date and we sat down and we're like, what are some things that are just the, the, 
the basic things that we want people to know about. And for us, it was communication, resilience, curiosity, and gratitude and service. And so we wanted the same way with the team. We wanted to communicate the best that we could. Um, we wanted to always know where we stand with each other. Um, and sometimes those are uncomfortable conversations, but if you're open to it, then you can solve a lot more problems faster. Resilience is we're living it through right now. COVID hits, schools get canceled. You know, you sit down and you're like, how are we going to get through this? You know, so take sacrifice from everybody, but we're getting through it. Hopefully this is the end of it now. Um, and then curiosity, we're always trying to get our kids to learn more and do different things. Um, and we have to model that, you know, if we're just do the same old things every Saturday morning, which is cool. I think, you know, you have to have traditions, um, but can you vacation at different places every year if you can, if you can afford it, or can you take your kids to places that maybe you wouldn't take it on a normal day? Um, mm-hmm. Having that curiosity and then gratitude and service. I think always being thankful for what we have, showing that appreciation to others um, and serving them. I think mm-hmm. we, even though our family's young, um, hopefully we can instill that. Um, and we made it a visual in the book. I share the crest that we yeah. built. One of my players here at Liberty is a graphic design. And so I gave her the four words and she came up with an incredible crest. Um, and so we actually put it in a canvas at our house and it sits by the front door. We all look at it when we come in, we all look when we leave, you know, just that reminder about what we are as a family. Yeah, that's brilliant. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Um, yeah, you, as your kids become teenagers, you might add honesty to that. So. Yeah. <laughs> that's a part of communication. That's true. That's true. Um, oh, you've already shared several quotes with us. Do you have any other favorite quotes that you'd like to share? Um, JJ Redick, the, the basketball player, yeah. um, he said it, um, you never arrive, you're always becoming. Mm. Um, and to me, that one um, has also been a staple of my life, always remembering whatever, whatever you achieve, um, it, it's, not, you, 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 it's not the end, you know? You, you know, I think if I, one day I win a national championship, the, the next day, hopefully I'll be asking what's next instead of this is so cool. Obviously, I'll relish in that moment, but hopefully I won't get comfortable and thinking this is it. It can't get any better than this, you know? Yeah. Um, so I always keep that in mind and that goes with everything. You know, if you think you're incredible at math, well, you can get better at math or if you're incredible forehand, you can hit a better forehand. You just need to work at it. You never arrived or always becoming. That's a easy one to remember. You know? Definitely. And what is one lesson you hope all your players have learned by the time they leave Liberty? That tennis is what they do. It's not who they are. Um, even now in Gen Z, like we talked, their identity is so attached to their performance. And even the way they talk about themselves, yes, I am a 11 UTR. I am an 11 UTR, you know, um, that has power. Words, words have power. Mm-hmm. Um, and just because you lost a tennis match doesn't mean that you're a failure. Just because you won a tennis match doesn't mean you're incredible. You know, you just won a tennis match. Now you got to move on and, you know, just because you want a tennis match doesn't mean you get to be a jerk to your roommate when you get back to the dorm, you know? Um, and so always trying to instill that into my girls. And I hope that as they graduate, they can see that. That now because at some point their tennis career is going to be over. And what is their identity going to be like, you know? Right. If they all they thought was, yeah, I'm a tennis player, I'm a tennis player. Nah, 
I'm a woman um, with gifts and I do it happen to play tennis mm -hmm. um, because at some point that's going to end. And I think uh, that's why I think sometimes we see players retire and then come back, retire and then come back because they don't know how to live without it. Right. Um, and so um, I think that's a lesson that I want all my players to know. Yeah. Well, Giancarlo, I, I think we did it. How'd you feel? Pretty good. Pretty yeah, good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, look, your, your, your book is an absolute gift to college tennis coaches. In my opinion, what, what you've captured there, I think will be so helpful for the coaches, you know, speaking with you, getting to know you just a, a little bit. We haven't met in person, but, um, you know, I, I feel really good about the future of college tennis, knowing that your generation is coming through and the way you're thinking about things. So yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm hoping to be with the ITA a really long time and follow your career uh, for many years to come. So keep doing what you're doing. Um, yeah, it's, it's such a pleasure to, uh, to speak with you this morning and look forward to getting this out to our coaches. Yeah, thank you so much, Dave. Appreciate it. You're very welcome. <laughs>